Hello, welcome to Tet Manor podcast. I am James. I am here. Who else is here? The regulars. We've got John. John, how are you? Are you enjoying the sunshine? Got a tan? Yeah, amazingly for someone who rarely tans, I've managed to do it, which shows how, how nice it's been. Fantastic. I saw your dog was hiding in the shade. Yeah, poor were thing. You jo- were you joining him? No, um, although he's been all over the shop trying to find shade, bless him. And um, we thought we'd lost him, but he was actually under a bush. Nice. Okay. Jack, you're around as well? Yes, How are I you? am. Yeah, not too bad. Um, I've got a bit of a tan, but it's kind of one of those ones that's impacted by kind of flip-flop lines and streaky, horrible-looking bits. So I'm having to kind of keep myself hidden from people, which isn't a bad thing at the moment. Nice, nice. I think I, I let you guys know this already, but I went on a big cycle ride yesterday, just got completely lost in York, realising I don't know the city I've lived in for eight years but i went to bootham crescent or kit kat yeah. surprise or whatever it's used to be called um but yeah it's, it's really easy to access and just kind of walk around it which i don't know if it's a good thing but it's not official they haven't officially moved out have they jack uh not quite but the new stadium is allegedly now ready pending safety certificate and things so i don't think it'll be long before the bulldozers move in sadly it is a shame. I did. I just kind of stared at the terrace, and then some bloke walked behind me. I must have thought I was an absolute nutter. But top away anyway. day, like it was. Just, yeah, it was dreamy. But we can all yeah resonate with um, kind of moving to a retail park out of town, <laughs> away from the city. So I do feel for York fans. Um, anyway, we're we're done with our Radio Oxford specials for now. Um, but we're we're keeping the ball rolling as we've got Dave Pritchard from the Oxford Mail with us. Hello, Dave. Hello. How are we? Very, very good. Again, it's nice to be asked how I am because these guys never ask me. <laughs> it's part. It's the run. It's the running joke. It's the running joke. <laughs> Hilarious um, running joke. Yeah, I'm. I'm good. Thanks, Dave. What? What? How have you been keeping yourself busy? And how has um, COVID been impacting? I guess your your day to day job and home life. Um, well. <sighs> Quite, quite dramatically, I suppose, <laughs> given no, no games to report on or anything like that. Um, yeah. And my one and only colleague on the desk was furloughed at the end of March, although he, he is coming back tomorrow, thankfully. So, yeah, I've had sort of 10 weeks working out of um, a half-converted loft in my house, <laughs> um, trying to put a paper together every day. So, yeah, it's been a challenge, but uh, I'm still standing. Excellent. Okay, nice. What what do you reckon? Actually, I didn't know when to touch on this, but we we haven't had a pod for a while. What what do you reckon is going to happen with the the rest of the season? Is it they're getting back together on June the eighth for League One? Is that right, or at least on June the eighth? So June the eighth, um, they are due to vote or discuss the regulation changes, which would be to give clubs the option to curtail the season and have sort of you know playoffs and, and what have you. Um, I mean, the way that it's gone so far, I don't imagine they will then think about having a vote about whether you'd like to enforce that, you know, that day, which when, you know, it would seem uh, a good idea because I think everyone's, you know, I don't think anyone's really on the fence anymore. I think everyone knows where they are. Um, So my guess would be, uh, yes, that meeting's on a Monday at some point, maybe, you know, the following day or Wednesday, they would then get sort of final votes as to what each division wants to do obviously the championship and league two are pretty set 
League One is a bit up in the air, but I think that it's gone on for that long that, you know, there's two options on the table as far as we're aware, but it's gone on for so long that if if it really is a line in the sand on July the 31st, then one option is, is impossible because... You can't, there's no way you can get the games in if you know if we're talking yeah, that's exactly, June the yeah. 8th, even if it, even if it's on June the eighth, you know you you're talking you need two well three weeks at least to get the players up to scratch that takes you to the end of June, so you know we all know very well as Carl Robinson says every time he he's interviewed Oxford United played nine games in in February, um, but that still doesn't you know leave you room for the playoffs. So my I would think you know there's there's too many clubs now who who don't see a point in, in continuing um yeah. so you know off we go to the playoffs it's it sounds or i at least saw somewhere that clubs are going to lose potentially like 600k mm. for the remainder of the season um just due to not being able to have fans through the doors and trying to put on the games and such but i don't know if that figure was just plucked out of the air somewhere i don't know if you've had that in any of the reports i think um, it was deep in the Mark Palios, uh, you know, he, he wrote sort of Lord of the Rings on, on their <laughs> website. Uh, it was definitely in there somewhere. I think it, they, it was sort of clubs will stand to lose between 250 and 600 or something. Oh, I think okay. Oxford's is maybe about um, 400, perhaps. I mean, some of that is to do with the testing, which is expensive. But obviously, there's you have to go through that. Um, which I think is putting a lot of the clubs, you know, if you are Burton, for example, what, you know, yeah, why, exactly, yeah. why would you? I totally understand. Is that is that a cost for the clubs to, like a burden for them rather than the EFL yeah. taking the hit for them? Well, yeah. Wow. The Premier League are need... paying for it, but lower leagues aren't or having to pay for it. Mm. I think clubs sort of hoped the EFL would cover it or at least would pay for it up front and you'd basically get get less from them in future to pay it off as a sort of a loan but no they in one of their state one of the few things they did actually commit to in one of their statements was clubs will uh yeah will sort of pay once their seasons is seasons up so yeah if we're talking i mean the, the figure is 140 grand if you are completing the season um you know all the all the remaining league games obviously um if it's oxford then it'd be less than they probably about half that i suppose um because yeah. obviously there's only a maximum of three games, but you you can you need to test the minute you well before you start training. So uh, you've got three weeks where there's no games, uh, and then what a couple of weeks on top of that. So yes, it's expensive, and and obviously for Oxford there's a there's a point to it because you you've still got something to play for. But um, I can totally understand if you're a club in the middle. Um, it's money, yeah. particularly where you don't know the next time you can, you know, charge fans for a ticket. You know, why would you throw that money down the drain to fight for coming? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, well, that's why it seems like there's momentum heading towards the curtailing of the season, right? And that's where I was looking at um, other local papers like the Coventry Telegraph and stuff, and it sounded like they had some kind of insight or at least had heard that Rotherham, you know, it's, everyone's just looking at each mm. other's local papers, it seems. But they were just, it seemed like that was where the momentum was heading, that the season would just be canned. Um, and then maybe, what, then it's just playoffs and Rotherham and commentary are going up automatically. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, our, as the, um, I mean, we're quite good as a as a community of football writers getting together and sort of helping to fill each other's pages. So we've had a few yeah. kind of en masse uh, pieces in in the last uh, few weeks, yeah, and that we did. We actually we did two, 
one was a you know a week apart and that they it did show a shift towards that uh well actually basically what it showed was fewer clubs were on the fence now you know they they had come out and said no we not you know yeah they make yeah, yeah. they make a sort of song and dance out of well you know we'd love to continue but actually no we wouldn't john sorry i cut you off then um I was uh, going to ask something insightful. Oh, that was going to say. I mean, <laughs> Lincoln, Lincoln have by all accounts have announced their players released um, already. Which, you know, if we were then going to carry on, they've got players who know they're already out the door, and would they even want to play or or risk it? So there's so many things that have taken it beyond the point. The, hmm. the things like the Tranmere proposals, whether it's good, bad, or or an episode of Lord of the Rings, is um is just far too late. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that Lincoln thing, I think that's the most telling thing of all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I spoke to Michael Upton, uh, what, a month ago, you know, ahead of the 2016 anniversary, and he was saying then he didn't think that there was a, really a chance of, of carrying on at that point. Um, so, yes, it, it, it pretty much confirms it, doesn't it? If uh, you've got, I think they, they released 11 players as well, so it's not like one or two. Um, wow. Yeah, you can't, I mean, people talk about sporting integrity, but if you're going to play Lincoln in July, there's not much integrity about that, is there? If um, if you've got half a squad that isn't playing. I can't, I can't tell if it's a good thing that we've only got, what, three or four players that are out of contract. Or if you're Lincoln, you know you can save a bit of money mm. going forward. Do you, know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Oh, I I'm think, not sure what. Uh, I think given the uncertainty, they would probably wish there was a slightly larger number that were... Because, it, yeah, like you say... The vast majority of Oxford United squad next season will be on pre-coronavirus wages. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, yeah. there's a fair bit of wiggle room with loans and things like that. But um, yeah, I think there are. There's something to be said. You know, normally you wouldn't want that because obviously you're sort of building a squad every summer. But possibly this summer isn't that isn't a bad time to do it. Yeah. Do Do you think the playoffs will actually take place? Assuming the the season's canned. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope. Well, I hope so. I think it's probably. Ooh, I don't know, eighty, ninety percent. <laughs> because I think the, yeah. your big worry at this point, sitting here at this, uh, you know, very end of May, start of June, is seeing the pictures of all the other, you know, the packed beaches and things like that. You think, where are we going to be God, in a month's yeah. time? And you could go, well, you could, if they were to bring in a second lockdown then you could have a scenario where a lot of clubs have gone back, you know, built themselves up. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the uh, switch is flicked and we're back to square one again. I mean, the EFL did say that um, if that was the case, the, the final promotion place would be decided by them. I mean, you know, get ready for, if you think <laughs> there's been some squabbling already, then, yeah. you know, yes, I, that's I, a nightmare I... scenario. I can't help, but like I, I wanted to not be that one of those guys that just finds the thing that's right f- for your club and then latches onto it like a leech and just can't let it go. Mm. But I absolutely did do that. But the thing is that um, Ox Blogger did a bit of analysis and looked mm. at like the last ten seasons, didn't he? And then he saw that the weighted uh, PPG model was not massively more um, accurate, but was more accurate. So it's like. I just find that difficult when it's an objective thing and not a subjective. Su- I can't even talk subjective thing, and that was the thing that got me. And I think why people were didn't understand the kind of the non-weighted approach. But we'll have to see. It's just Wickham as well. Yeah, it's they were the, on an absolute collapse. 
It's the anyone but Wickham approach, isn't it? Really, that's what we all want. <laughs> oh, it's just yeah. It's just it would be very demoralising. Someone's literally just put something on Twitter this evening, haven't they? Where it just shows Wickham's downfall over the last like you know four to six weeks leading into COVID kicking off. Mm. Um, which I think we started with a one nil win, didn't we? They did have Seems a brutal fixture list over Christmas, didn't they? Um, yeah. But yeah, well. I don't know. We'll see. Watch this space. I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, there will be a few more twists and turns uh, to come, I think. I don't think it will be as, as neat as, as we've kind of laid out. But Final know. question on it, because it's, you know, it's just very sad for everyone anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> what do you see as being kind of the fallouts into next season being? And have you had any dialogue with the club or the BBC Oxford guys on on any of that? In terms of what next season looks like, just yeah, yeah, like how could this affect football going for? I know it's quite a big question to, yeah. <laughs> to launch towards you, but do you have any opinions or have you had any dialogue on that? Because it obviously then is there's an impact on your own role there as well. Uh, yeah, I'll try not to think about that. Um, the the sort of general piece is, I think it's inevitable. Everything will be reduced in terms of wage budgets, transfer fees, all of that mainly because no one can say with any confidence the next time there will be fans at games, which um, clearly, you know, a Premier League club, the proportion of their income from gate receipts is is nothing like what it is at at, uh, Oxford's level. So uh, you're really rolling the dice in the summer if you really think, you know, if you're going to sort of go again, um, I think everyone will be, cutting their cloth but obviously you know where you've got like we said with Oxford with not many out of contract it's going to be a bit difficult and you might have kind of thought earmarked one of the big names to go for a seven-figure fee this summer which you know suddenly you might be going you're not going to get any more than I don't know 700 grand for Cameron Bannigan and that's a very difficult situation Um, but suddenly 700 grand might be quite a significant amount of money at that point um yeah i mean the the problem is that i know you know i speak to people all over the place um no one can say you know we don't know when what's going to happen next week uh with this process i don't think the efl have you know this is something that's ongoing so i think the clubs they can't agree about this so who knows when um next season will start i mean if you talk to carl he thinks he's pretty confident it will be september yeah you'll have a shorter you know, if if let's say playoffs start July, the the finals mid July, you could have, I don't know, a month off and then a month of pre-season. That you know, you could start in mid September. You do something funky with the cups or not bother with the cups or or some of them. Um, you could just about get it done then, and we're back to, back to where we were. But again, no one can see. You know, are we without crowds till the new year? I don't. I mean, who knows? Uh, so yeah, yeah. That, that I think clubs will because there's so much uncertainty. Clubs will have to err on the side of caution. Um, I Did know you it- guys see the? Um, I think it was in Denmark where a club has like put put a massive screen on one of the stands and is kind of projecting all of the fans that are on a Zoom call watching the game live to see their reactions and to record <laughs> their sound and then play the sound of them out through the that you know the PA in the in the ground. Have you seen that? I've, 
Am I? I've seen. I don't it. think it was a dream. No, no, I've I've seen it. There appears to be so many weird and wonderful ways to sort of boost <laughs> fan engagement. The one I think is the probably the weirdest is that you would pay to have your face on put on a like a cardboard cutout. And can you imagine oh, playing yeah. a game and you score a goal and you turn and you see somebody like deadpan looking at you, like as you scored? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, someone put Dominic Cummings and yeah. um, a storm a stormtrooper. In the, in the crowd, all very topical. I'll get started on um, the South Koreans as well. <laughs> um, the thing you mentioned, Dave, about like Cameron, Cameron Brannigan going for a, a nominal fee is uh, Jack. You were saying something similar about Rob Dickey, weren't you? There yeah, a, the, something floating around. Obviously, the Rob Dickey going to one of numerous clubs. Rumor seems to be put out again. Whether that's his agent getting stuff ready early, but the the valuation. I think it was the Mirror started floating 600,000 around, which, I mean, I think we'd all collapse in tears if we only got 600k from him. But as Dave says, it's going to be a new world. So if that money, you know, puts the club on for a few more months, waiting for gate receipts to come back, it, it might be something that has to be done. Yeah. I in, in a weird way, once all of this is over and everything is kind of relative again, then maybe it'll be a better thing. And then for the smaller, you know, the lower tiers, it's actually easier to be a more sustainable club, more stable, whatever. Um, the salary cap thing seems to have been discussed a lot today as well. I don't know if you guys have heard about that or Dave, whether that's anything that's been brought to your attention. Well, I mean, you talk to people in, you know, talk to Carl or other people at the club and they say, well, we basically do have a salary cap, which is the SCMP rules. There's the problem is they're not really enforced as rigorously as they, yeah. as they could be. So, um, I think they would. I don't think they would want a, you know, set figure for a division, and it, I think it causes all sorts of issues. You know, when Sunderland came out of the Championship, I mean, I don't. I think their wage budget now is still sort of twenty million or something. Um, so to suddenly go, you've got a year to get that down to two and a half is because um, you, you know you know what they'll do. They'll try and they'll keep it as it is for a year and hope they they bounce back straight away. So. Um, I mean, I agree. You know, you, you want to see some bit more sustainability and some sensible thinking, but um, it feels like the, the they have the you know framework there. They, it's just a case of can they, you know, can they give it some teeth? Yeah, I, you're right, actually. Because if you are Sunderland, you, you'd have to get, after a year, you'd have to get to a point where you're like, right, uh, we're going to release George Honeyman and we're going to buy Cedric McDougall from um, the Ifmian Premier League. And that's how low they'd have to go. Um, right, let's move on from COVID stuff. As as this is your first appearance, your debut, Dave, on the Tipmana pod, we've got a bit of a getting to know you section, which we've run, but I don't know if you listen to any of the BBC of guys. Of course, yeah. I, I mean, Dave. I feel a little bit of a disadvantage coming after three professional broadcasters, but oh, no, <laughs> you know, bear with me. Um, but yeah, where? firstly, where are you actually from and where were you brought up? Uh, so I... Uh, Grew up in Newbury, uh, just down the road. Um, but uh, so I was there. I lived there till well, my mum still lives there actually. It's uh, got a nice bypass. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, very controversial at the time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's you know nice little town. But uh, funnily enough, you although it's about the same distance from Reading, we we you we always look to Reading just because um, I mean certainly as kids when you're sort of able to go away and, and start going to games and things it was reading was was really easy because you could just get a train and uh, obviously in those days it was elm park 
uh, and they had a station right next to it, which was um, yeah. very straightforward. So yeah, apologies. I, yeah, um, it was Elm Park. <laughs> that was the next Manor. question. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting to know, though. Um, what? So what was your first kind of Oxford game, um, and was that with with the Oxford Mail? Uh, no. So the, the, I've been to the Kazan once to pay to pay to get in, which was a League Cup game in about two thousand and three. Um, that was uh, Reading. I mean, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm a Reading fan. I'm not. <laughs> we, we probably went half a dozen times a season, but it was just because it was the, the local one. Um, yeah. The first time I covered Oxford United um, was the Tunbridge Angels game. Oh, um, wow. It's, it's covering... amazing how this comes up <laughs> yeah. on every single podcast these days. But I was covering it. Um, I was covering Tunbridge. Really, and so amazing. And from a seat, first, yeah. No, I, I, I did not see. Yes, I did have a seat. Actually, yeah, I probably had Nathan's actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my first job in journalism was was on a paper in Kent, uh, and you know, then Tunbridge drawing Oxford in the FA Trophy was. I mean, I remember doing the story when it when the draw came out. That was as good as it got. Um, and I wasn't at the first game. I think was that nil nil. You probably all blanked it out. Oh God! Yeah. It definitely I, went to a replay, it. so it quite yeah. could, could well have been. It was obviously a draw, and so yeah, they they I, I was at the at the replay, which is you know terrific night for Tunbridge, not uh, not so good for, for Oxford, but uh, so yeah, so we, <laughs> I, I obviously missed the uh, the conference years with Oxford, but I did get a glimpse of, of just how low they could go. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Do you have a Do you have a club out of interest? So yes, I, well, I grew up a Liverpool fan. Um, mainly, I mean, yes, I know you can't hear the accent. Uh, <laughs> the I, my family, no, not football's not really a, you know, there was no big influences there. Um, so someone get, I mean, it, Italian ninety was what really lit the fire. So um, and Liverpool were everywhere. So yes, uh, you know, with no yeah. no one to guide me, um, it was <laughs> Liverpool. However, that was, that was the thing back in that that era, there wasn't it? Like everyone supported Liverpool, mm. and then. Everyone moved to Man United and so on, so don't don't feel bad. Yeah, I mean, if I was born a couple of years later, I you know I would would have probably meant I was a Man United fan, which absolutely makes me shudder. But um, <laughs> funny enough, I mean, I've been doing this now for thirteen years, and the opportunity, you know, you just become you just don't have room for two clubs in your life. Um, so yeah, I mean, these days I couldn't tell you who Liverpool have got next week or, you know, I've been to see them once in, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, I'd much rather, you know, I'd be much more bothered, you know, if only one of them can win on a weekend, it's Oxford all the way because you just get immersed in it and um, the other stuff fades, especially, you know, the whole, the Premier League is just so sort of alien now, isn't it? And um, you can't get a ticket and it's just, you know, this is, this is proper, isn't it? Absolutely. That's not. So, do you reckon if you ever, if you got a role, let's say, at a big broadsheet paper one day, and it was more national coverage, do you feel like you would still maintain that affinity for Oxford in terms of that would be a club you would follow or even support? I would hope so. Um, I mean, I'm a bit unique in the the people who follow Oxford. You know, in the the uh, the sort of Oxford journalism core because I've this is my, the second club I've covered. I think everyone else is one club men. So I, the, when I uh, was in Kent for five years, I covered Gillingham. Uh, so, Ooh. well, 
you know, what can you do? <laughs> um, so, you know, there was a similar thing at that point, you know, where you get immersed in them, but then I came here and you sort of drop them and you quite, you know, it's amazing how the turnover in players before too long, you, you've, you don't, you've got no link yeah. to them anymore. Um, so I think it would depend on, you know, if I went and got a job, at I don't know, Coventry Telegraph or whatever started covering Coventry, then it, it, it's hard to keep that link going. But like you say, if you, if I did something else, then yeah, of course, I, I think it would be hard to forget Oxford. Just to go back to it, what when you started supporting Liverpool, who who were the who was in charge then? Was, uh, was it Roy Evans? Maybe. So oh no, maybe that's a bit later. Sooness. Sooness. The first one I probably. I mean, I think probably technically it was probably Dalglish right right at the end. Uh, but yeah, Sooness and then yeah, Roy Evans and Julian. What about a player? Who was the first Liverpool player when you were like right? Oh, he's the man for John me. John Barnes, absolutely. John Barnes. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Everyone's <laughs> got to say that. <laughs> Um, had some in Rush shin pads as well so well he had a great tash did you try and bust out a similar <laughs> tash maybe or like a stick on one uh, I, I can't remember I, hopefully I, hopefully there aren't any photos in my, my <laughs> picture album but uh, I can't rule that out it's just one of those players in Rush just doesn't if you look back at the old like um, who made the old sticker albums begins with a P Panini. What they're called. Panini. Panini that's it you look back through those albums you look at the picture of Ian Rush he just does not look like a footballer at all I don't understand how we scored so many goals, but anyway. Um, right, Jack, you're going to ask some more sensible questions, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you say they're sensible. We'll find out, won't we? <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess, I guess, Dave, we kind of roll back to the beginnings of your career in journalism. Mm. And I suppose the, the first question is, was that always, you know, your, your goal in life? Was it the classic answer to the what do you want to be when you grow up question at school? Um, well, it was... <sighs> I mean, after football, you know, I want to be a footballer, which you probably ditched yeah. when I was about, I don't know, probably later than I should have done. Um, I think it was always something that you kicked around and, and sort of said, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? But I, I never really entertained it as a possibility. I'm one of those annoying people who didn't really know what they wanted to do uh, or, you know, just couldn't just couldn't picture it. So um, I went... I, went to university to do a history degree I, I just really liked history and it didn't really um close off many avenues uh so that's how I ended up uh so I, I ended up at Leicester Uni um my first kind of taste of it was it was a you know as quite a lot of these things are a bit of luck and knowing the right person um my first two years at uni I played for the team played football for the t- um university team I mean, not the first or anything, but uh, still, it kept me busy. Um, but I had the second, after the second year, I had tendonitis in my knee, which meant it's it's not that painful, but it takes months to heal. Um, so I, I suddenly had um, quite a lot of spare time on my hands in the third year. Uh, I mean, at that point, I had about four hours a week or something, contact time. So um, we were sitting around with someone else uh, on my, on our course and she wrote for the university paper um, and said, I, uh, I don't know how it came about. She said, oh, um, this is right at the start of the third year. They're looking for someone on sport. Well, you know, we've got a meeting in 10 minutes or whatever. Come on, why don't you come along? And my life, who knows what would have happened if I didn't go to that <laughs> meeting. Uh, so, and it, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't a job interview or anything like that. They, they said, would you like to, you know, it, 
you know, here's here's what you can't do, which was basically Leicester City, because they they already bagged that. Um, so I ended up doing Leicester Tigers for a year, the rugby. Um, I'm no rugby fan, but at that point, that was 2003. They had sort of half the team that went on to win the World Cup that autumn. Yeah. Um, so that was my first. Welford Road was my first taste of, you know, a press box, in press conferences, all of that, and you could. Obviously, there was no pressure really to to do very much, so you could just sort of sit there and, and take it in and try not to get in the way. Really, I um, guess that's cool. That's the the cool thing about student media. I had a dabble in it myself. You do get dispatched off to uh, such a range of things. I remember covering the kind of university lacrosse team for a little bit, yeah. and I had no <laughs> no idea what was going on, yet alone how to kind of attempt to write something about it. Um, that's how I felt, t- Leicester Tigers. To be honest, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just just have to kind of get through it. Um, so you mentioned that your kind of first job or, you know, professional job, if you like, was with a, with a paper in Kent. So how yeah. did that kind of come about from, you know, the early days of, um, university journalism? Yeah. So I did, uh, so I did the year, um, at university paper and then took a year off to go traveling. Um, I can't quite remember the, I was trying to think this thing about this earlier, but basically, I think at that point I had realized it was something I wanted to do. Um, so I had a few months before I went away. So I got, I definitely applied for work experience all over the place. I did, um, did a week at the Reading Evening Post, did two weeks at 442. Um, I can't remember where else I went, but um, so I remember going, I was on this round the world trip and I remember I was on a vivid, I can clearly remember it. I was on a beach in Malaysia on my own and it, I just sort of made a promise to myself you're going to give this a go you know you're going to do what it see what you know you don't know until you till you're in it but I had no reason not to not to try um so basically that involved a bit of research the the best route in that I could see was or the the, the kind of most the, the the least risk in terms of getting something at the end of it was a postgrad course um back then and it's probably still the case there was there were th- top three to go to um city in london cardiff and sheffield um i got in at sheffield luckily and had the most intense year uh, in academics that i've ever had it was unbelievable um very intense but it got you ready um and a bit like with the how I got into the uni paper, it's all about contacts. Um, someone on my course was from Kent, and they actually got a job before the end of the course, uh, and they were so they were back home while we were doing our exams. And they he, he rang me up and said, "There's a paper in Kent that's looking for a sports journalist." So, you know, all the way along, I'd been prepared to do a couple of years on news because sports jobs come out come up so rarely. Um, but I was basically willing to go anywhere. Other than Newbury, yeah. I was, I was about to ask that. Would you go anywhere? Yeah, yeah. Other than Newbury, um, <laughs> to to do it. So I, you know, sent off a CV. Fortunately, fortunately got it. So yeah, that's how I ended up. Um, so that's quite Kent. a uh, quite a kind of difference from th- sitting on this beach in Malaysia, thinking <laughs> I'm going to give it a go, to ending up sitting <laughs> at, sitting at Priestfield uh, yes. covering covering lower league Gillingham. Yeah, or even Tunbridge. So uh, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, and that was great. It was um, so my my mate was on the, I guess the sort of the equivalent of the Oxford Mail, uh, and we were a new, fairly new paper, 
that covered it was sort of a quality Sunday paper um, so uh, we had the advantage a bit like the uni paper of you could make mistakes and no one would know no one necessarily noticed so um, that was pretty good in terms of uh, a young journalist sort of making his way that you could you know, I think the you know if you, if if the job I've got now was my first job, I think that would be you'd, you'd make all sorts of clangers and and people people would remember you for it. Um, whereas this, you could get that out the way uh, without too much bother. So yeah, I enjoyed that. That was, so I had best part of five seasons with Gillingham, who uh, they were League One when I started, and we had they got relegated, promoted, relegated. My first three seasons. And then sort of bobbed along in League Two with Oxford. Uh, then I left, and they promptly won the league. So there's, there's, that's a good omen, you know. When when I, you know, pack up at the mail, you know, get your money on Oxford for the following year. <laughs> so I guess naturally moving on is how, how did that move to the Oxford Mail come about? Um, and was it was it straight in as kind of chief sports reporter, or was it a kind of sports reporter role to begin with? Um, so yes, the, so the, my paper in Kent, we were, it grew to become a four man desk, uh, which I really, they it was some really, we got, we did some really good stuff there. Uh, but they had kind of overstretched themselves just as the moment the credit crunch happened. So we went from four to three to two to me, um, not unlike the moment actually. <laughs> uh, and I basically had six months. Uh, trying to carry on I mean Kent is a big place uh, so it I wasn't really enjoying it I was desperate to find something else uh, and just so happened that you know the stumble across the Oxford Mail advert so yeah it was the chief sports uh, reporter role I think John Murray had so what this was uh, the end of 2011 I think John Murray had finished his role and had gone to become a sub at the Mail at the end of 10-11 I think so um, Mark Edwards, who was the sports editor, was kind of doing both jobs um, for a few months and realised that was um, too much. <laughs> so they yeah. he, uh, the an application went out and, you know, somehow I got it. I mean, I, I would guess I was quite a, a gamble because, I mean, although I could say, you know, well, here I am, I've covered Gillingham for five years. You know, I was completely new to the patch, you know, um, yeah, it was. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was just cheaper than everyone else. Did, was that? Did that come with a big move for just you, or did you have a family then? Or um, it actually worked out quite well because um, so my mum was still in Newbury, so I could move home for the for the start and, and commute. Uh, I actually met my now wife on the paper in Kent, but she had already left at that point and was working in London. So I was going from I was sort of commuting up at the weekends to see her anyway so it was a similar commute just from a different angle if you like so that yeah I mean at that point uh it was it was fairly easy as long as it was in the southeast uh, I was fairly flexible um so nice. that yeah it worked do you so, generally sorry to ask sorry Jack the where do you actually work did the Oxford Mail have offices somewhere in Oxford or is it on the outskirts or do you yeah. generally work from home or? Uh, no, well, this is the first time I've ever worked from home, this, this uh, crisis. Right. Um, no, they've got huge um, printing press and offices at um, Osney, uh, not far from the river. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Just sort of so we have to negotiate the Botley Road. So what you'll notice is 
whenever there are traffic traffic uh, well, roadworks on the Botley Road, they get a lot of coverage in the Oxford Mail because all the <laughs> journalists have been held up in the morning. And when there are roadworks on the Banbury Road, uh, it gets a lot of coverage in Radio Oxford because of the, the same thing because their studios at Summertown. So yeah, um, yeah, sort of <laughs> that's how it works. So yeah, yeah, big big office there, um, which I'm not missing at all. I have to say. <laughs> So the obviously the advert said chief sports reporter. Did that immediately scream Oxford United, or was it a case of a wider remit? And is there kind of an untapped sport in German Oxfordshire that you can uh, kind of call upon as well? Um, I mean, I think it, probably the, the next line was Oxford United. I mean, the I mean Oxford United is the top. You know, is the is the most important thing. Second most, third most. It, it just without Oxford it's Oxford United it, it there's not a great deal that is widely popular if you know what I mean there are yeah. pockets that yeah. you know and then I get stopped all the time and go why don't you do this do more of this or that and it's like well um Oxford United is mass appeal which which doesn't have you know which just doesn't apply to anything else you could get a really brilliant story for um you know one of the non-league clubs or an individual who's at a really high level in their sport and it just it won't come anywhere near you know Jamie Hansen missing training with a hamstring strain it's just, just, just how <laughs> I do it always I do always think that on on Radio Oxford when they often will send people to different games be it like Brackley versus someone or whatever Maybe that that is a bit higher, but then at the end of the games, they'll always go through the results of like the local games, like Kidlington versus Summertown and Florence Park. Where and I'm always just like, who? No, surely the people that care know the result already, and no one else needs to know. But they do put a lot of a lot of time into those games, and I'm I'm guessing yeah, it is a it's a compromise, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, How we would have had those about? scores and reports in as well at some point in the week. You just probably haven't look, been looking out for them. Um, yeah. I mean, they, you know, you, you are aware that, I mean, particularly in this this sort of hiatus we've had for the last few weeks, you are aware that um, there's a lot out there um, and, you know, everyone thinks they should have a bit more coverage and, and fair enough, you've got to fight for your for your own corner and, and, and someone who follows North Lee week in, week out, they're just as passionate as you guys. Um, yeah, it's true. It's, it's all football or, you know, or you know, Henley Hawks rugby or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's all, it's all sport, isn't it? Um, but as I was Mark, saying that, I'm just picturing everyone from Florence Park coming to kill me. So. <laughs> They're quite handy, those lot. So yeah, you've probably <laughs> chosen the wrong, wrong club there to pick on. But, um, but you know, we, you've got a finite space in the paper or you've got a finite, you know, amount of time in your bulletin. You've got a part of you know, journalism is about, you know, picking the best bits out and then narrowing it down you've, you've you do have a responsibility to cov- cover as much as you can but at the end of the day we we can see what people are reading online and like i say jamie hansen's hamstring is more popular than everything else put together unfortunately yeah you just copy and paste that article every three months <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very harsh from jamie but you get my point i guess you've, you've touched on how uh, the sports teams kind of yourself and one other at the moment. Has that been kind of a change over time? Obviously, the, the kind of nature of the local newspaper has changed a lot in you know, the last five to ten years. So yeah. how does that kind of sports team still still fit, if you see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I came in in February 2012 and there were uh, eight of us. 
Um, wow. And over time, that's kind of chipped away. Uh, we had, as all you know, up to October 2018, there were still four of us. Um, and then we went to three in December. No, sorry. I can't even remember. We went to two in December. Um, so, yes, it's when people sort of grumble, well, you, it's not as good as it used to be. Well, there's two people doing eight people's jobs here. So, yes, you, you're, you're quite right. <laughs> we have to um, prioritise, unfortunately. Otherwise, we'd all be, you know, having nervous breakdowns. So, yes, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's tough out there. There's no doubt about it. So then I suppose, naturally, since February 2012, when you kind of joined how how has that OUFC coverage kind of changed over time given that there's now just the two of you and presumably more pressure to get everything in and less time to look at things going on yeah I think funnily enough I think if you picked up a week's worth of Oxford Males in 2012 you probably wouldn't know if you're only looking for Oxford United stuff I think that's probably stayed pretty consistent because you you know that that works I think what what has suffered is is everything else um and I would say, I mean, when you look at what we do now compared to them, there's an awful lot more stuff online, you know, in terms of, I think at that point, you know, I was only asked to basically, you put six paragraphs up at half time and then a, you know, report online at full time. And then the first sort of quotes would appear on a Monday. So, you know, that side of things is just completely, well, it's overtaken the, the paper side, the paper sort of follows it now. So, um, you still try to keep things back for it, but if it's a 50-50 call, it always comes down on the side of web now. Um, so, yeah, that's that's changed. But I, I would hope that our coverage is, of Oxford United is, hasn't declined in my time. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly changed, but uh, I would think the number of pages we're dedicating to them hasn't, hasn't decreased you know noticeably i guess naturally with things like social media as well the kind of process changes a little bit i always remember um when sarah gooding was at the club there was all the kind of 6am signing alerts mm. but i guess even that even though that was kind of what five six years ago all the kind of tips and rumors seem to have landed on twitter or forums etc so i guess as well there's a fine line between speculation and fact um what point do you decide there is a story there to be written yeah, it's a tricky mm. one, um, and I mean, it, I don't know. It, it depends if you sort of see other local papers and how they go about it. We it, and it is it, basically dictated by what's your relationship with the club like. Um, if you are kept at arm's length by the club, that in some ways that uh, hurts you because you know they could drop a signing at any moment, and you 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 may not have know know about it. But it does give you the freedom to be a bit more speculative uh, and um, you can scoop them if you get it right, of course. <laughs> uh, what we've got at Oxford is, I would think, is fairly unusual in terms of the kind of, if you've got me, BBC, with, I mean, effectively Jerome and, and the club and, and then Chris Williams, I think we all have a, I mean, I'm not saying we, we don't fall out, but I think in general, we are pretty, we kind of all respect each other and trust each other. So a lot of the time in the summer, you do 
you, there's a lot of off the record stuff with you know I mean it depends on the manager but I mean Carl will quite often talk to you about people you know and, and un- you understand it's off the record so you you do have a but that's un- sort of the understanding is you're not going to run that um based on yeah. that uh you have to kind of compartmentalize your brain a little bit i mean if that player then is linked somewhere else you know f- f- let's say you're signing someone from rotherham and that's in the rotherham advertiser then you would you you could conceivably have run that story if you didn't know that that person was on the radar so but obviously we you can run it as speculation full in in the knowledge that there is something in it um so it does get quite complicated uh but you basically you're in in the circle uh but what and what you get through that is i mean those 6am embargoes were for us basically because that gets it in the paper the next of that so you can be in the paper and online at the same time uh, so you have that good relationship. That's that's what you get back. But there's a sort of understanding that you then don't go uh, perhaps digging as hard as you might. Um, and I, the other thing I was thinking about this earlier, I, I'm all sort of forever, I, I forever admire people who stick their neck out and say this person is coming, and it happens three weeks later. Because when you're when you do get an insight into how these things work. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of players that I've been told by someone at Oxford United is done and they're coming tomorrow, be here at 10, and you get a yeah. phone call at 9.30 in the morning saying it's off, he's gone to, you know, wherever. Um, and you would look, you know, at that point in the night before, you could go, I'm, I'm 99.9% confident this is happening. Let's get something in the paper. But suddenly at, 9.30 the next morning, you look pretty stupid because <laughs> it's not happening. So actually, the more you sort of learn about transfers, the more you realise you more you realise that they're sort of all based on very shaky foundations until someone's signed a bit of paper. Because do, do you do you generally find that you like as a, like 99% of the time have been announcing stories at the same time as the club mm. and BBC Oxford? Is that generally just because that that circle is there and you've got that close relationship? Pretty much, yeah. Um, ha- has there been one where that hasn't happened that you can remember where the, you've seen something online you've gone, oh crap? Um, probably, but I've probably blanked it out now. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, certainly not in recent memory in terms of because because my, basically you you're almost there every step of the way with them, so you yeah. you kind of have a have an idea um, unless. You get something from a, you know, op, you know, another journalist who's covering the the opposition club or whatever, um, and then you can you can kind of, if you can find it back corroborated somewhere else, then, but even then you wouldn't necessarily say it's hap- you know, it's a done deal. Um, so yeah, transfer windows are, I mean, transfer deadline day is a whole other kettle of fish, but in general, transfer there are there was to a certain extent you are quite relieved when the window's shut and you, 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 <laughs> because you particularly with all these rumor websites now you know they they can be wrong so often but yeah. they but no everybody's one everybody's in the know aren't they when it's transfer deadline day allegedly yeah oh that's and people are you know genuinely out to trip you up and, and things like yeah. that so it, you no one outside of my industry would believe this but the only people i can trust on transfer deadline day are other journalists because they you know they they don't have an agenda i know people will find that hard to believe but um you 
are privy to a lot of you know off the record information but you can there's a fair bit of kind of swapping that goes on in terms of you know if someone rings up and goes what's happening with this i mean there are some people you trust and and some you some papers who you don't but a lot of the time you know you're not necessarily running a story off the back of what they say but it, it forms part of it um so yeah they they are long day i'm glad there's only two of them in a in a in a year um <laughs> they're good fun but they they can be quite stressful if nothing <laughs> happens or a lot of things happen do you tend to find out if it's even off the record basis why some transfers haven't happened and sort of I was thinking, not perhaps not in recent times, but do you generally get to find out why they haven't, or is it just a nine thirty call? Sorry, we've messed you around; it's not happening. Um, you, uh, yeah, you might not at that point, but yeah, normally it comes out. Mainly, I mean, mainly the manager has an interest in explaining why it's not happened. You know, they go, oh, you know, oh, the agent or whatever, yeah. or they were up suddenly on, wanted another two grand a week or, or or something. But I mean, again, that you know, it's very hard to. It's, if you ran that, it'd be pretty obvious where it came from. Um, so, yeah, it's more just for your own knowledge. I mean, the thing is, and sometimes these transfers break down um, and they sign two weeks later. So, uh, you know, until they've signed for someone else, it's not it's not dead either. So it's just like, a you know, I think fans would be, if they sort of got an inside track. I know Carl has said this about, you know, before that, you know, if, if they could really show you what happens in a, a week in the transfer window, I think everyone would be amazed that anyone got signed, frankly, because there's so <laughs> much, there's so much um, kind of poker being played um, that it's hard to get any deal over line. These, I think, it, and it gets harder. I think as players get a bit savvier and agents become a bit more awkward. And um, were there any yeah. players, sort of, say, perhaps not under Carl, because it's it's sort of more recent, but you know, under previous managers that didn't work out, and you thought, God, that would have been good. For as a sense of a player who didn't sign, I mean, I think they did. They worked bloody hard to get Alfie Mawson. Okay, um, yeah. When he because he was obviously he played really well. For, uh, he had season at Wickham, didn't he? Uh, and then, but he was on. He was only on loan from Brentford, and I think they they really pushed hard for him. But uh, he and then he obviously ended up at Barnsley, um, but, and obviously. Oxford were proved absolutely right that you know he was mm. a player. Um, trying to think who else. It's always Barnsley, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, obviously he was. He was one that if if Michael Appleton went to Leicester a day later, I think I think he we would have we would have I think Liam Lindsay the ink would have been dry on the contract. So uh, that was I think that was an actually that was a case of that was probably a nine thirty call. It's not happening. Job. Um, I think the other one was, uh, I think they, I think they were close to Shea Adams when, when, hmm. where did he go for, who did he come from to go to Birmingham? Sheffield United, wasn't it? Well, I, I've met, I've met Shea Adams in a airport terminal lounge. I had a chat to him for about Kemar Roof for, for uh, about okay. 20, 20, 20 minutes. Well, that's yeah. um, a complete tangent. Well, maybe uh, that it, sort of put him off. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> me, me single-handedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was Chef Chef United. Was it okay? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think they. I think he is definitely one you had heard whispers about, and obviously, you know, one one that 
we got on the record was Matty Taylor and uh, we were on tour <laughs> in Spain, which I think they were pretty livid about. But um, <laughs> uh, I think that was a rare example of Michael Appleton saying something he probably shouldn't have done. But they were so cross because uh, they thought they'd, they'd got him. But I don't think they'd necessarily... I think they, I think the agent was on holiday and they met the met him, met the player, and not and felt they'd agreed something. But obviously the agent then uh, perhaps used it to to get a better contract. I think, but um, yeah, you hear all. I mean, you, you could probably make a decent eleven out of players they've almost signed. But um, I think there's not many clubs that have had their strike rate in the last five years. So I think we should probably be thankful for the ones they did get. Do, do agents ever try and speak directly to the media and to try and drum up, or can you just see through it at the moment? They do. Or? Um, I think I've probably been called maybe a handful of times, and at that point, you think, particularly at Oxford's level, you think it's a bit much. I don't understand. You know, I don't know why you're speaking to me about this. There must be something. It must be either you know True. you're using it to to drum up interest in, in the player for someone else or. You know, it just seems. I you always treat that with very with suspicion because they are they have, you know, you talk about vested interests. They are yeah <laughs> at, the, at the top of that tree. You know, I mean, you know, they've got a game to play as well. But um, yeah, it doesn't happen very often at, at my level. I think it probably happens a lot more as you go up. So you talk you talked about the kind of inner circle with the you know the OEFC media and BBC Radio Oxford etc. Um, coming from a more light-hearted side of it, are there any particular mm. memorable car journeys to Carlisle or anywhere like that with the Radio <laughs> Oxford guys? Or who's the in-car entertainment? Um, well, I mean, I probably get, I probably sort of split, you know, sort of half and half. Or some I'll go on my own, and half I'll go with them. Um, I mean, really, it it comes down to, you know, the the Tuesday night away trip somewhere north and York it's one o'clock in the morning and you're still the wrong side of Birmingham and it just <laughs> becomes delirious. You know, it, it sort of, it, you, you've, you've processed whatever the game was um, by, you know, long ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, they are good fun, those, those journeys and, you know, whatever the score, because you, you, it's a, it, it's a group, it's a collective thing and you sort of get through it and come out the other side. So yeah, I mean, I can't think of individual journeys that stick out, but um, you know, you you learn a lot about people when you're stuck. You know, there are not many jobs where you would get in a car at eleven at night in Accrington and have to drive. You know, <laughs> it's just not a normal thing, is it? So, uh, yeah, I, I I quite enjoy the any you know you you look back now having no football that you know you I, I'd love to go on a you know. A go through some little village in Cheshire because the M1, the M6 is shut um, again. <laughs> I mean, they, the highways agency have it in for football fans, I think, because you just can't get anywhere, <laughs> can you? Um, so yeah, those those journeys are all part of it. I mean, it's the same. I'm sure as a group of away fans, um, it's the camaraderie, isn't it? And then that's that's half yeah. the fun. And actually, you know, there are times when we get out of the car, having got to the ground, and think. Well, that's the fun bit out the way. You yeah. know, now we've got, uh, you know, the football can only the football can ruin it now. So, help paint a picture. Who puts on the music? We know Jerome was quite particular about either driving or being in the front. Yeah. Who puts on like the music, or is it just all silence and chat? Oh, there's no music. It's all chat. I mean, they're obviously 
professional chatters so they uh, <laughs> warmed up so yeah i mean there's probably i mean i don't believe in the jerome roads you know car sickness story i think it's just a way to get get in at the front um so <laughs> uh you know you probably have a chat for half an hour about the football on the three-hour journey but it, it's just everything i mean you get to i mean they they are technically the opposition but you know there's a you know, you, I would count all of the, all, you know, all of them as, as friends. So, you know, you, you really, you learn a lot about each other on a, cooped up in a car on the way to Fleetwood or somewhere like that. Yeah. I guess kind of move, moving on, um, kind of the match day routine. So, uh, how, how, how do you approach it? So, you, you know, you've got to be uh, at, say, let's say, say Fleetwood on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the kind of build-up during the week? Um, how early do you like getting into your seat? Do you have a read of the program? That kind of thing. Mm. So I'm really, uh, I really like to be settled. And I, I, that, the, it's a weird thing where if you're running late, um, you just never, never really catch up. Uh, so I mean, especially now with days with Carl doing his one thirty um, interviews to to give you the team news. Uh, so, I mean, we would aim to, well, let's say if we're saying Fleetwood, then, I mean, with the, the grounds that you go to regularly, you've got a bit of a routine. So Fleetwood would be, there's a little McDonald's not far from there. So we'll probably aim to get to there for half 12, um, then get to the ground for just after one. So we, I mean, I would want to be set up before we did the Carl interview, um, because, you know, every, every third time or something, something, he drops something quite big that you need to get on the website you know at two o'clock when the team news drops um so yes i i I would rather i would rather be there at half 12 than half one put it that way um and then i mean i will have uh so we have the press conference on the thursday so the thursday is all about getting the paper done for for friday that's the that's the main day for um oxford united news in the paper um and i'll have written the lead for saturday as well on Thursday, so that's a long day. Um, then I probably spend about an hour, hour and a half on the Friday doing sort of prep for it. Um, so making the little um, front page cover with the badges on and stuff, and then going through um, team news and stats and things like that. So I've got, and then I also, uh, with the live blog, I sort of write the intro on the Friday. Uh, and maybe a few other bits and pieces in terms of teeing up stories that I've done in the week. So it means that once I get get the blog going live, I can just basically copy and paste stuff in the first half dozen links just to get, get momentum. That means I can go away and speak to Carl and, you know, hopefully no one's noticed that I, I haven't done anything for 10 minutes. <laughs> I do. You're used to getting the Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber. I like it a lot. Lineup <laughs> response, aren't you? Mm. That's a common. Well, you know, I think one. it's nice to have these little in. <laughs> I'm not sure in joke. I'm not sure if it's an in joke, but you know, these little um, yeah, traditions. I, like I suppose it. You know, it's good, and I think it's quite funny because probably people um, kind of hijack it from time to time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, I th- the way you talk about the way that the job has changed in the eight years that I've been there that. You know that whole Twitter side is really, you know, I, I love that side of it and the the instant yeah, feedback. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, you do get told if you if something's wrong, but you know, immediately, and that's that's fine too. So, um, 
yeah, I, I like all that side. I, I would really, uh, you know, if suddenly they go, right, you're taking two to a game and you can only do the report or the tweets, I think, it's a, you know, it's a hard decision to make that because I do, I do enjoy the the kind of live nature, the running of it and, and the interaction. Yeah, that, that Twitter feed is fantastic, I think, for anyone to follow because, yes, the, the club do their own, but maybe you can be a little more objective about what's actually going on and the decisions that are being made and the, the actual performance than the club feed itself. So I found it is, especially when I haven't necessarily caught all of a game to yeah. go back through it and see what was happening when I found it brilliant. So oh, that's nice. Um, keep it going. Well, it's good that I'm doing it, you know, at least I'm doing it for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think probably, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's not an easy job to do it as a club. You know, if you're, I mean, it's a very easy job if you win 4-0, but um you know, tweeting that game at Cambridge, uh, they lost five one. I think that's a that's a difficult gig. Um, yeah. So probably the thing to do is to take my tweet and the club's tweet and probably work out somewhere. It's, <laughs> the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, mm-hmm. the trouble is that you know there are times when we we have given different names for the same incident. Uh, so I don't know how you draw the line in between those, but uh, ho- <laughs> hopefully I've got it right. What's the kind of deadline that you face kind of after a match? How how quick are you having to get that final report sent through? Um, well, I mean, Saturday is sort of straightforward because the next paper isn't until Monday. So you're getting it. I mean, you, you want the match report on, on the whistle, basically, uh, or certainly as close as you can. So unless there's a, you know, a Charlton 3-2 scenario, it's pretty unusual <laughs> that you couldn't get it online within a couple of minutes of the final whistle even if there was some you know late change or whatever um tuesday nights are a really a different kettle of fish because you do have a paper the next day so um we would have three pages in wednesday's paper to fill and they would essentially be blank at 9 30 and you've got two hours to do it um so there's there would be someone in the office uh and me and a photographer uh, so the photographer would file his he'd file sort of six to eight pictures at half time and then the rest are as close to full time as you as he could um so i would i chuck the chuck the report online you don't have time to read it um through so you have to be pretty confident it's clean um so basically i, I don't write anything in the report in the first half then spend half time writing what's happening in the first half and then I basically don't write anything again till 70 minutes. And at that point, you hopefully have an idea of which way it's going to go. Um, so then I write the second half and then you go to the top and write the, the first six to eight paragraphs, sort of summing it up. Um, well, it depends. You know, if you're 3-0 up, that's fine. You can do it with 20 minutes to go. If um, like with the Charlton get or the, I think the one of the hardest ones was, uh, I don't know if you remember in Pep Clotet's season that was a Tuesday night at home to Bradford where they were um it was two all but they had basically I think they were losing with 10 minutes to go winning with a minute to go and then uh then they drew two all so you can imagine how many sort of rewrites that took so God <laughs> what no. about the Coventry game this year at home <laughs> um well yes that was I mean that was pretty wacky wasn't it uh I mean, you just fortunately at that point you can just focus it all on poor old Mister Darbo. Um, <laughs> sort of, that was that was the main thing. 
some guys scored two own goals and Oxford have got a point at the end. So, and you kind of worry about the rest of it later on. You can tidy it up. So, yeah. um, so back to Tuesday night. So that's online. I mean, the reason you need to get it online sharpish is because you can't miss the interviews. So, and obviously at the Sam, you've got a fair way to, you know, it can be three or four minutes from leaving the press box to getting pitch side. Uh, and if, you know, you walk out, I mean, it never happened to me, thankfully, but if you were to walk out and Carl Robinson's walking up the tunnel, you'd think, oh God, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, I mean, I take my laptop with me and um, if there's a gap between interviews, you kind of start clattering away um, and you get, so if the game's finished at just before 10, you'd hope the interviews are done by 20 past and then you've got maybe 40 minutes to write something, but uh, you have a, then you have a game like, I mean, the Newcastle game was sort of my worst nightmare because it was a, uh, it was in a five past eight kickoff, wasn't it? Cause of the BBC, cause of EastEnders. And then it goes to extra time. So you're already 50 minutes. You've lost 50 minutes and you know, no one's going to give that, you know, we can't print the paper later. It just, it's got to go. So, uh, and they also had on that occasion, cause there were so many reporters, they had the press conference up, in the little room behind the press off uh, behind the press box, so that's a bit a bit of a longer delay because you you're getting players up and you actually at that point you want to hear what the other manager has said as well. So yeah. uh, I had I remember I hadn't transcribed a single thing uh, really. I, I mean I'd put out a couple of tweets about quotes, but I had literally 10, 15 minutes to pull together four interviews for in 400 words and get it sent across and we beat we got the deadline by two minutes or something oh. so and so at that point you know that's i mean with the right you know you, i don't get the sort of same adrenaline rush that the radio guys would get during a game but that that's when that's when mine comes mine comes about an hour and a half later <laughs> <laughs> uh, so normally it's not quite quite that tight but yes occasionally it can be do you find that whilst kind of I'm going to say watching the game, but obviously you're working and trying to make notes, etc. Have there been times where you miss, you know, a, a cross has come in, Matty Taylor's headed it in, you think, oh, blimey, was that Henry? Was that Ruffles? Do you end up asking, you know, other journos around, um, especially, say, at away grounds, if it's a home player, yeah. do, do you end up thinking, oh, blimey, I've got no idea who made that key pass? That only happens about 20 times a game. <laughs> uh, so you just have to make sure you're sitting i mean I, the dream result is you're sitting uh within earshot of the opposition radio uh and you, the other side of you is chris williams or something so you've you i mean what you do find is the your eyes play tricks on you and you basically you need you want someone to corroborate what you think you've just seen so you constantly talk you know turn into the next person next to you and going you know henry to brannigan to taylor yes and they're like that's what i saw you know? <laughs> uh so that's fine um so yes it happens all the time because you know we there is so much that i do during the 90 minutes that you have to um you can't be looking at the game the whole time you know i dread to think how much in terms of minutes that i watch you know you just hope that some the really important bit happens when you're you know, maybe in the first 20 minutes when, but I mean, even then you're tweeting, you know, if, if you've, if there's been a, I mean, I remember, I think, was it, it might've been the Coventry game when Marcus Brown hits a brilliant volley that hits the post. So I'm down, you know, I'll tweet that. And by the time I've looked up Coventry have scored and you think what yeah. on earth has happened there. So, 
um, yes, you just you what sports supporters are very. It's a it's a communal thing, and we're all in the same boat. So, um, yeah, you you share everything. Uh, and actually, what you what you really want is someone from Sky near you because they all they do is ring in the goal, so they're watching everything. Or the guy from the Sun who's got 150 words to write, um, so he's seen it all. What about from like the the other local paper? So in that case, the Coventry, whatever yeah. it was, Telegraph, Telegraph. Like, are they sat near you, or do you have relationships with? I think you might have said earlier from guys from the local papers. Yeah, certainly where you've got um, you're in the same league as people for year in year out, and where I mean it's a lot of thing. You know, it's dead man's shoes. A lot of these jobs, so that people I'm I've been there. I've been at the Oxford Mail eight years, and I'm probably still one of the new ones uh, on the circuit in League One. Um, so yes, you build up quite a good relationship uh, with a lot of them. So. I mean, it just depends where. Sometimes your seats allocated, sometimes it isn't. So, yes, it would. All, it's always nice to sit near them because, um, yeah. But they can also give you little tidbits as well. Uh, you know, like oh, he, you know, he did. You know, if someone got sent off or something, it was, oh, he did exact same thing a month ago at, you know, Barnaby yeah, or whatever, exactly, and then you yeah. can look really knowledgeable. Do you still? Do you find you do get the sort of euphoria and? bits of joy from a football game or based on what you've talked about your mind seems to be working in a completely different way to people like ourselves if we're just watching it or are you so engrossed in the sort of the working side of it or can you take a moment to appreciate a great pass and let the the football fan come in or are you just so wired in a certain way during it that you kind of almost don't kind of feel the mood or or emotion um well i would hope it's the it's not saying you're a robot, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> because you need to, you do need to feel that to to give a sense yeah, of what, yeah. what the report, you know, to to hopefully bring a flavour of what that game was like. I mean, I would say it does depend on what where you are in the game and whether you feel like you're behind in terms of what you need to where you are with the report or something. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you do try. I mean, I think probably, you know, you're not sort of jumping around punching the air when a goal goes in because that's, you know, that <laughs> looks really unprofessional. Um, but I think you sort of let out a let out a shout or whatever when, they, you know, something... I mean, goals are different, aren't they? If it's a consolation, you sort of head down and carry on. But if it's Ryan Ledson at Charlton, then, yeah, I mean... I mean, the desks at Charlton prevent you from getting up. So I'd, I might have sort of banged my knee, but... Um, yeah, you do. You do kind of. Uh, I mean, there's not limbs or anything, but you do. Feel, you do feel it definitely, particularly uh, if the atmosphere is there. That would be quite a sad sight to see the limbs of the press box. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're right. sort of pulling people off air, you know, and things like that because yeah. they are dangerous places. You, health and safety hasn't hasn't arrived yet. There is wires trailing all over the place. So, um, yeah. If, uh, but yeah, I think you do. You, I mean, it would be hope, it'd be sad to that you didn't. You were sort of switched off totally. But the, at the end of the day, you can't get swept along in it away completely either. Because, like you say, you've got I've got eight hundred words to to do on the whistle. So, um, you know, you can't be jumping around. Sure. <laughs> High fiving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and a, you know, and a, that... you want to get the tweet out first as well. Yeah, you could high five the woman, isn't it? Like the woman from Tame that screams at home games, really oh, near yes. where you guys sit. I always think that she's sort of on the. It's like she's on a ghost train or something. <laughs> but I do believe that she prevent. She's prevented Oxford conceding a goal in about <laughs> twenty 
thirteen or something. There was a there was yeah. a ball down our side, and she and Johnny Mullins was sort of dawdling over because he didn't see the striker, and she'd let out a shriek. And I swear <laughs> that's what made him react and kick the ball out of play. So you know, she can stay each to their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, she's into it. You know, you can't argue with that. <laughs> You, you, you touched on the kind of, oh, I need to get 800 words kind of in. Has mm. there ever been a time when, you, you know, there's been a horrendous nil-nil at home <laughs> and you just think, how on earth am I writing anything about this game? You, I mean, it does happen where you kind of, because um, I make notes as well on the pad as, as we're going through and you sort of look down and it's like, it's th- literally it's 35 minutes happened and I, there's nothing. I've got nothing, you know, and you're used to something, maybe someone has a shot from 30 yards after five minutes that goes 10 yards over and you don't write it down. And then all of a sudden you're sort of <laughs> asking to the bloke to your left, um, who, who was it who had that? Because, you know, I might need to write a hundred words on it <laughs> if this game doesn't pick up. I mean, there's always something, surely. I, I mean, I haven't, I've never sort of, well, you just, what you find is you, if, if it's a really dull first half, you don't write as much because that gives you room to write more in the second half and you just hope it it picks yeah. up. I mean, if not, I mean, if it's really not very noteworthy, then that's sort of noteworthy, isn't it? But you can really go in on the fact that this was utterly tedious and, um, you know, you you talk about a, a good, really good throw-in that happened on the 70th minute or so, you know, make a feature <laughs> of that. So um, I'd be interested to go back to the... Um, <laughs> What was it? Ipswich nil nil at home. You know where the oh, weather the was. Well, that was yeah, exciting be- in itself, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I know. But the game itself was so bad that I can imagine like a good ninety-five percent of your article was just about the weather and the yeah. referee and is it on? Is yeah. it off? Well, I don't think I don't think I've ever been at a game that's been suspended before. You know, and it really did feel like that game was in the balance. Um, yeah, uh, and it's funny because I think people who were sat in the East End couldn't work out what the problem was. But if you then they when they saw the tv footage from and obviously the cameras in the south stand which is what we see you know you you were amazed the game lasted as long as it did and, and the referee got so lucky that night because he by not making a decision it it he looked like a genius because the rain stopped didn't it pretty much straight away and then yeah and the, the pitch there drains very well so yeah we got a, a sort of a game didn't we but um <laughs> i mean it looks like two points drop now doesn't it uh you know i think it probably conditions maybe suited ipswich that night but Although I think Oxford were very, very fortunate not to give away a penalty, weren't they? On yeah, I remember but, that. Well, uh, to be fair, there it's just their hope. Ipswich's home form is yeah. the one that's horrendous. It's not so much their away form. Is there any, just thinking of wrap, wrapping up a little bit around the Oxford Mail in particular, are there any kind of stories that you, you've written or broken that kind of sit as you, you know, in the kind of top three, any particular proud of? Um. I was thinking about this because I thought you might ask. Um, I mean, one of the sort of proudest days um, was the JPT final, the Barnsley game. Um, and that was purely from a sort of production point of view. We had, I don't know, seven, maybe nine pages to, to fill. Um, and I think it was maybe a half two kickoff. And by the time you are... Um, done with interviews and things and they kick you out really early at Wembley um, it was maybe six uh, and we still had I mean how long is it to drive to Oxford from there an hour and a quarter maybe so we were getting in and nothing was on the pages uh, and we were sort of kind of talking it over on and there was three of us um, and 
you just you it's amazing when you've got a deadline what i don't know how i would cope with a job that doesn't have deadlines because it just you just go into a a zone with it and you know hey presto the, the paper was done and, and by midnight and um we were still kind of uh tinkering around and putting things on, on online and stuff which meant that when we left don't know one one thirty. we left with a copy of the next day's paper you know we're still sort of inky and stuff and that was a real kind of buzz to go you know no, no one picking up the paper the next day particularly because oxford lost would appreciate it but you know we knew that just how much white space there was a few hours ago and all of a sudden it's brought to life with you know particularly the brilliant pictures um that was that was a really fantastic uh day you know you slept well after that I mean, I, I would say that, I mean, the supplements are always great. I really loved the the Milk Cup one we did, the 30-year anniversary. Um, and I was, I, I sort of did the interviews to track down the starting 11. Uh, so it was great talking to those guys. And obviously the, the 125 magazine that we did was a real labor of love. I don't know how we did it, but we, we got there because it was basically all in our own time um the award-winning supplement uh yes it was yes very well remembered um so (laughs) yes that was that was great i mean uh, one sort of recently that that i will i think i will always remember was and it probably isn't remembered by many people was the was to do with john shuka um his i was going to do so he was going to be a i don't know if you remember he was going to be a guest of honor at a game in the autumn and his family got in touch because he was suffering from dementia and they were sort of looking to you know be interested if i'd be write something kind of about his condition and 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 also you know basically uh, which was going to be framed around him being back at the, the game but he was uh, taken to hospital the day before and it was all kind of uh you know we'll go well i spoke to his wife and said well we'll do we'll do it when you when he you know rearranges and then couple of weeks later there was a big report out from the uh about scottish foot you know the link between scottish footballers and dementia from the you know the scottish footballers from the first 70 years of the 20th century so i rang uh, lynn his, his wife up and said look it's in the news now let can we can we do something and um so she she was uh, interested and um we sort of had quite a long chat and she basically said, look, can we, can I send something across? I just want to get my thoughts down on paper. So she emailed it across. It was some really powerful stuff. Did a story the next day. Um, you know, just a nice back page, you know, she was kind of calling for basically, you know, don't let another generation have, you know, happen, turn out like John, basically, you know, he, it was too late. It's too late for my husband, but we need to do something. Um, so he did the story, sort of forgot about it. Um, a couple of months later, he died, and I got in touch with the family because the, the paper wanted to do an, an obituary on him because he was obviously a well-known figure. Mm. Um, the family got back in touch, and it's normally a news reporter that does that. One of his daughters, I think it was Becky, rang up and said, um, we'd interested, uh, but we'd like you to do it because they, they felt they knew me. So I sort of under well, you sort of hesitate a little bit because it's I had a lot on and it's the, an hour in the wrong direction after work. But I thought, no, come on, I you know owe it to them. So I brought their 
his picture file, uh, which is sort of a couple of inches thick, because I thought they might not have seen some some photos. Um, and all the way there, he lives in Bampton, so it was sort of forty five minute drive. And all the way there, you're thinking, I'm I'm not sure this is a good idea. You know, if if they would I want someone I'd never met turning up? You know, he'd literally died less than twenty four hours earlier, and you think I'm not sure. But so it sort of knocked on the door with great trepidation. And she, you know, it was the next two hours were amazing. The, you know, they they went through the photo album, they're sharing stories, and it actually turned out that off the back of um, the story I'd written in a couple of months earlier, uh, it had been picked up by the PFA, who had um, basically said we will we're willing to cover the nursing costs, oh, wow. which meant that basically he was able to to die in his own bed surrounded by his family um instead of you know in a hospital or whatever and it just meant the world to oh. the family um that's nice so you sort of at times you do forget people read what you write and the power that it can have um so yeah that was a real special one um for me anyway you know uh, and you know they invited me to his funeral i was probably the only person at his funeral who had never met him um but yeah so uh, you know i i think the world of their family and uh yeah that was a great one it's probably not what not the the funny story you were hoping for but really (laughs) uh, i think i think that perfectly highlights the complete range of stories that you do do end up covering obviously kind of the the headline is oxford united you know chief sports reporter but that's just you know a lovely little anecdote to hear about yeah um, That's brilliant, yeah. It shows the power of um of long form, which I guess you probably don't get as much chance as you'd like to, to do, but when you do it, you can make change like that. Yeah, I would love to to do a bit more of that. Um but like you say, it's it you there's only it's only worth doing if you if you can do it well, um and you just you can't rush it. So you what you tend to find is if you've got something big like you know in the pipeline it, it's you end up doing it at home after work because mm. you you you, want, you need an hour away from the phone ringing and the emails going off and things so um yeah a lot of the kind of if you sort of think of any sort of double page spreads that you do on uh you know whatever uh it it, it takes a lot of time so yeah that most of that has come out of office hours frankly but you sort of think it's worth doing so you want to do it well I guess, kind of to, to to move it on a little bit. Um, throughout your time covering Oxford, you've had quite a a range of let's say personalities and characters who you've had to deal with in terms of the management. Hmm. So obviously, beginning with kind of the back end of Chris Wilder, uh, where it's arguably, phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where uh, it arguably you know had all become a little bit uh, stale with his relationship with the fans. So how was he to deal with in that kind of final couple of seasons that you would have uh, had to work with him yeah he was um hmm, this is an interesting one he i think basically you can divide chris wilder's time at oxford united into when he was working with kelvin and when he wasn't um i think i came in in the february kelvin thomas left that summer and uh, he just uh, it wasn't the same guy he was quite he could be quite difficult a challenge um and i think although i'd um you know, obviously been doing it for, for a few years at Gillingham because I wasn't the main paper. I think you could, like I say, you could make mistakes and 
maybe not even realise you'd made them because they wouldn't be picked up. Um, he was someone who who did read the paper um, and would let you know if he disagreed with it. Um, so I was probably I was probably a little bit naive in terms of the way I dealt with him at times. Um, I mean, I, he he could he could be fantastic company, uh, and actually, I think most of the time on a Thursday before a game, you got some really good stuff from him. He, but he could be quite prickly i think it's a fair description um and actually he was more he was most dangerous after they'd won three on the bounce he was he was always brilliant after a defeat um but sometimes you would if they you know were in a good run you'd think i'm gonna get it here and he would you know he, he wasn't unknown for bringing out a player rating from a month earlier that he disagreed with, but he couldn't bring it up at the time because they were, so he was, I mean, I think he, like you say, he was, I think he was generally a bit stale and and looking for something different. Um, And, you know, I don't think it's uh, giving too much away by saying, you know, I think his, his relationship with Ian Lennigan was a lot more business-like than it had been with Kelvin Thomas, who, uh, you know, he went on to form a brilliant, another brilliant partnership with Northampton, but, Equally, I think he was just, I mean, I think the quote when he was when he unveiled at Northampton, it was sort of, you know, felt like the car was driving itself to to the training ground. You know, I think he, he just needed something different. I mean, it was a hell of a gamble to go to Northampton and he, he laid it all on the line. And it would be amazing to think what would have happened if, you know, if they had lost to Oxford on that final day and, and gone down. Um, because would I mean I'm sure he might well have stayed in Northampton and might well have got them back up again. But you know he since he's left Oxford, it, it's just been an amazing ride for him, hasn't it? And you know I think he's probably a different bloke these days. Um, and you know I think, he still seems pretty direct as a person, doesn't he? But maybe he's just not lost that. Yeah, I mean to be I'll be completely honest. There were there were it took me a while to watch. Um, post-match interviews with him because of this you know because of the stare he, you know the eyes would narrow <laughs> so I, I know what that feels like so um but yeah i mean he came back didn't he for the the 2010 i think he's i think he deserves to be remembered for what he did you know not you know not in the not right at the end although to be fair that what he did in the final season he was there was pretty remarkable because that team it had talent but it was held together with bits of string and sticky tape wasn't it and to to be in the knocking on the door we were right up there weren't yeah we? yeah i mean yeah. they at christmas he was yeah. actually i think he was probably at in the time i knew him he was at his best back to the wall everyone's against us you know i think he's brilliant at that um and when there was a game he absolutely had to win they more often than not they did um yeah so you know, and they it was did. just weird timing, wasn't it? Because it's like, and I've listened to a load of the official um, pods from the club and you get, there was one this week with, who is it? Michael Collins, Michael Rains yeah. and Tom Newey, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Um, but they were, yeah, every every single um, player that was kind of part of that team said if he'd have stayed on, we'd have we'd have gone up. So, and it, it just feels weird there was such a, 50-50 split amongst the fan base at that time, even at when we were up there. Mm. It was strange. I suppose him him leaving, you then you know end up with Mickey Lewis into Waddock, the whole playoff collapse. Then there's the big takeover during the summer and Eels and Appleton come in. 
what was that kind of six, seven months of complete, in a way, chaos of different managers, different owners, etc.? Was it a case of, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? Who's going to be in charge? Um, um, not really, because, yes, you describe it, you know, that is what happened. But, you know, you didn't know it was going to happen. Um, I think, to be honest, they, they to, to start with, they were quite keen, the club were very keen on keep, you know, giving it Mickey Lewis till the end of the season. Uh, and I think they just didn't quite do enough in the few weeks he was there. Um, so, yeah, then we go to Gary Waddock, who, you know, he, I think he just wasn't there. I mean, he was taking over a team. I remember, I do remember his, when he was unveiled on a, it was on a Saturday I remember him talking. He was talking very positively about things, and they—they'd obviously they just won, didn't they, on the Friday night against Hartlepool, um, which was nice that Mickey got a got a win to finish. But it, it was papering over the cracks. The, the wheels had come off, and that that team was knackered. Um, and Gary was sort of, you know, are there any? Maybe they were. Maybe they were in the playoffs at that point. But you just felt he. This guy doesn't appreciate what what he's taking over. You know, he thinks this is almost an open goal to get in the playoffs and you know then that's maybe a 50 50 thing to or 25 percent chance of, of getting getting up but to me it just felt that you know this is this is gone they're, they're, this this is a club that and you know and it, he found out pretty quickly because they lost three nil they were absolutely battered weren't they at south end on telly on the monday night oh um yeah and it just it was pretty horrible wasn't it at the end and and i think I feel sorry for him because I think he, you know, had probably been made promises that, that then weren't kept because all of a sudden there was a takeover on the line. I mean, one thing Ian Lennigan is brilliant at is um, managing information. So we sort of had to work very hard to get the nuggets out. That, that some, I mean, it was clear something was up because that was a long few weeks, wasn't it, where and only Danny Hilton arrived and he just felt, and I think even, I mean, you know, Gary Woodard, felt it as well but he, he couldn't say anything um so yes the takeover happened but i mean uh in an amazing bit of theater that the official statement which was read out by ian lennigan i mean when mark ashton and daryl eels walk in you think okay we know where we are here and then in the 17th paragraph he's been talking for about 15 minutes and he says oh and um there will be one as a result of this takeover there'll be one change of personnel and you think, oh, are they, you know, getting rid of commercial director? Or <laughs> yeah. What's Christine in the ticket office done to upset them? <laughs> and he said, you know, and that, you know, that will mean that uh, Michael Appleton takes over on Monday and Gary Waddock, um, you know, his, his contract has been terminated. And I, I mean, the way I remember it now, there were there were gasps. I mean, they probably weren't, but um, you would that was completely a shock. Um, and because you know, don't forget that. Mike Lapton was quite an underwhelming appointment, uh, given his track record at that point. Um, so, but yeah. at least at that point, it did. You know, whenever you have a takeover, the, the, it does feel like the manager is on borrowed time. At least it sort of it meant a clean slate. So at that point, you think, right, that's that's got to be the carnage over for a few months. <laughs> um, so at least we know the, these are the people we'll be working with. So you can kind of knuckle down and, and sort of make. Um, Build, build bridges with them um but yes that was quite an eventful time uh although you at the at the uh, you know when you're living it you don't really f- notice were you at that press conference yes 
Yeah. So did you spit your coffee out when <laughs> I can't the new manager was I, there? Were you like, oh, crap? Because you do, because as he was reading it, you were like, yep, we know that. We know that. We've reported that. That's fine. You know, he was got a bit funny about exactly who owned what, but you you felt, okay, this is, this is going as we thought. And then all of a sudden, you're completely um, blindsided by this. Yeah. And you go, oh, God, what, you know. I've heard of Michael Appleton, but I can't tell you that much about him. You know, suddenly you're, it probably was, it wasn't Ramon Diaz territory where you are literally, <laughs> who the hell is this guy? Uh, but it was um, quite a shock, let's <laughs> put it that way. So, yeah, but what what was Michael Appleton like as, you know, to work with, obviously his kind of on the field start was, you know, dodgy to say the yeah. least, but being in, in and amongst it, did you see the kind of future success come in? Well, I mean, you're going to think I'm lying, but I really did. Fi- I really did buy into what he was saying. He he was a, um, he was someone that, I, I mean, he's the best manager I've ever worked with, um, because he is someone. He is. You need to earn his trust. But once you've got it, and hopefully we did, suddenly he gives you a bit more. Gives you a bit more. You know, I, I love Carl Robinson's bits, but you do feel like he'd tell his pin number to. <laughs> someone who asked you know just because he's a he's that kind of guy you know he's just i don't know his pin number before you ask but um he's that sort of he's so cold is very you know complete chalk and cheese with, with michael appleton but you with appleton you felt that he was going to give you more than he was going to give someone else because you'd kind of earned it but it did take months before he said anything off the record to me and jerome i remember sort of turning to, i think it was probably the february or march and you suddenly go because normally he was perfectly polite, but you do get managers who, the minute the record button is, you know, the, you stop button is pressed, they're out of there. Um, but then there are others. I mean, sometimes Carl's Carl talks for longer off, you know, when off mic than on it sometimes. Um, so yeah, Mike Abbotton was was brilliant, um, and you did. He has. He was so sort of single-minded, and you knew that he couldn't have, he could not afford to let this job fail because he couldn't have another blot on his copybook. That would be it in terms of him as a manager. Um, and he was so driven. And and I think that the and you know if you remember back the, those first few weeks, the results weren't great, but they did play good football. But I remember them absolutely pass it. We went to Morecambe on a. Tuesday night or something, and absolutely battered them and lost one nil, and it, and we're to an offside goal, and you just felt this guy just needs a bit of luck, uh, and obviously he needed. They were at a massive disadvantage when the, the takeover happened because it, it was the start of July and they were playing catch up, and you, you, it was a scramble, and that season was a bit of a farce in terms of I think they got up to 43, 44 players, but you you felt that um, once they got it going, and the exciting thing about that period was you felt when particularly being on the inside but i think they were pretty good at communicating with fans as well you felt they had a you knew what their plan was and what being in around football for as not well 13 years like i have is you'd be amazed how many clubs don't have a plan you know that the plan is well, well we'll try and get a striker who scores a few goals and then you know let's see how it goes um this was it was pretty clear you know they had they were bringing this recruitment department in but it's, it's clearly going to take a bit of time to get going um but i mean daryl was he sort of 
Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, wasn't it? It was you know build it and they will come and and sign them and they and we this this team will get over the line. Um, so there, there was such momentum going into that fifteen sixteen season. You just felt this is this is going to happen. So I always thought that Maps one of the best managers we've had for a long time in sort of handling the media, so to speak. I always felt he he gave enough, but he didn't sort of overextend himself, which I can appreciate for yourself must have been frustrating and positive in a way. But he did, as you touched on, I think there were there were signs that something was happening. But I can remember him talking relentlessly about transition. We're in transition. And it's mm-hmm. like we're losing games, though. So you can transitions are fine if you're winning games or drawing them. But did you ever sort of feel that you could say to him, look, I kind of understand it, but fans are getting frustrated because mm. you keep talking about transition. You keep sort of managing this perfectly, but you're actually being a bit robotic as well. Is there a bit of, or was he just sort of keeping your arm's length and allowing you in slower and slower? Or, I mean, he was actually, d- despite, you know, his, um, the way he looks, he, he was he was someone who understood the, the other thing that I really liked about him was he understood you had a job to do and if you asked him yeah. a, a difficult question that wasn't personal uh, and you know frankly the, the first six months you know you, there were quite a few difficult questions and, and he you know that wasn't out of nowhere they were I mean after a couple of months they were bottom weren't they or bottom two so you know he, I, he was never someone I was worried that he would you know bite back because it was it was built on fact um but yeah you just felt that it he it once he got things how he wanted and 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 he i think he would not admit it perhaps or he certainly didn't at the time but they they did change their style because i famous sort of fans forum after six weeks or so where someone asked him what a plan you know what's his plan b and he the, the famous answer we sort of well do plan a better <laughs> and and uh you know by november december that was looking you know that's going to be on his you know oxford united tombstone because it's not it's not work as good as things you know as good as they could play it just wasn't working and he he unquestionably became a little bit more pragmatic and i remember sort of asking him about that and he was like no we're doing everything the same but i don't know if any of you were at... the game that really swung it for me was um i don't know if any of you were at the game away at stevenage on in the january and they it was you know cabbage patch of pitch horrible day and they just ground out a 2-0 and that just you know they weren't playing out from the back they were playing in the right areas because that's what the conditions dictated you know and and three months earlier they were sticking dog you know completely to what they'd been drilled even though it was sort of palpably obvious you you couldn't you know it was very brave to do it in those conditions so uh and at that point you think okay he's there's a bit of flexibility there um and obviously that january was the first pieces began to to form wasn't it with with joe's cars and alex mcdonald and then pretty quickly they got George Bordock and Kamar Rufin um and the the suddenly the wheels started turning didn't they and you just felt going you know they they absolutely smashed May when they got Roof and Circum in bang bang you know and you okay okay this is happening um <laughs> so that was very exciting because you, you know you're still 12 months away from achieving anything yeah, I think obviously the, the, the promotion season 
Um, we, we we all know how fantastic it was at finally going to away games and seeing us <laughs> knock four or five goals past people and for, for ourselves travelling from kind of Yorkshire to all over the place, knowing, or, and you, you would, you would know you were going to go to a game, you'd see them win, they play well. Yeah. And I don't think many of us have had that kind of confidence <laughs> for such a long time. Um, I mean, obviously, moving on a bit from Appleton, you then, you then end up with Mr. Clatet, who mm. I imagine was quite a different kettle of fish altogether. And obviously, um, his particular strange group of signings rather ripped up the recruitment process that that map had built yeah. um so what 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 was mr clatet like he um i mean very personable um so uh, and you know he was a completely different uh obviously a completely different guy to michael Ableton. um but you know when it happened there was a certain logic to it in terms of uh the the his background in terms of you know that Swansea and, and they played good football and this was you know no one would have really f- f- figured that Michael Appleton would would work out in the way he did so you know let's let's see what he's got and obviously to begin with I mean I, I they were pretty good to watch and you have you know Gino comes off the bench and scores that incredible yeah. goal against Portsmouth and you know Riccardinho's sensational and you think okay well you know maybe getting the Malmo team of 2010 back together is the right thing to do. I still think um, we should have signed Riccardinho <laughs> earlier this season. <laughs> well, I, I've got a real soft spot for Riccardinho. <laughs> uh, and he was just a lot of fun, wasn't he? Um, yeah, and he that's just, the thing. You know, he would actually, he's the, uh, just on a tangent, he, he he was obviously a little bit difficult to interview in terms because his uh, English was, was okay, passable, but it wasn't, you weren't going to get brilliant you know nuggets from him but uh, i do remember one interview he sat down got his phone out and showed me and i guess it was jerome um his the birth of his child which had happened two days earlier and he'd had a his wife had had a c-section and so you they he'd filmed it the baby coming out and i was like okay i, <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with this he was like the you know up the, the um the right end shall we say uh so it was you know it was all fine but uh you know i do feel like well, you know we shared something there um so yes yeah, so i, I love <laughs> um but yeah it just steadily began to fall apart didn't it i, I the first time was i remember uh blackpool about a month in when they just got beaten up didn't they and uh and lost 3-1 and you think okay that was that was a bit of a mess and then they go to bury and get Tonks and you th- and but then they were still capable. I mean, I think the next game after Berry was the Peterborough game where they come from behind and win four one, and that was brilliant. Um, but you just it was it's funny when you're in you're around them like like we are. It's not necessarily what someone says. It's a look. It's a you know a raised eyebrow at a question or you know where there were it was clear that some of the senior players were had some reservations and potentially. You know, I think it's difficult to bring in the the sort of players he did, and and not have a kind of us and them mentality. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a strange one because I I wasn't expecting him to get the the boot when he did, but I wasn't so massively surprised, despite the the uh, league position. 
because I think they were tenth, weren't they, at the time? But it did feel like, in a bit like when Gary Woodett took over, you know, the 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 league position didn't tell tell the full story. Um, and I mean, he's obviously gone on and, and is you know under difficult conditions at Birmingham has, has done a you know reasonable job. Um, but he was it it just didn't work out. And it, I think he was a little bit unlucky in terms of. Um, it it came it he came in and then pretty quickly it was clear Daryl was um you know I mean Tiger was in in the in and around the club for for a long time before anything happened but I think Daryl was probably a bit distracted and and wasn't in a position to to stand up and back him in the way that he had for Michael Appleton um so. Yeah, you know, I think who knows what would have happened if if that if he if he it felt by the end it felt like he was pretty isolated. Yeah, I think it was very much a case of right right manager wrong time from his point of mm. view. Um, and I think whoever came in after Michael, you know, if not, Carl yeah, came in after Michael, it's it, it's still a it's a they are huge shoes to fill. Um, so yeah, it was, it was probably a bit like you know David Moyes coming in after Alex Ferguson yeah. at a lower level. Um, not not an easy role, particularly if you're going to change the script. Um, he just became a bit of a joke figure quite a bit too early in his regime yeah. amongst the fan base, and it was just difficult for him to recover from that, I think. but Yeah, I mean, the language... I mean, he obviously sp- he speaks English very well, but post-match interviews, not many managers are good at it. And we, you know, we ask some daft questions at times as well. Um, <laughs> but that the, the, the Wigan game, the post-match was <laughs> yeah. just... Oh, car I remember crash. that. Yeah, and you just think I cannot believe. You know, actually, a, a post-match interview after you've lost seven 0 at home should be a doddle. You should, you know, you should come out and say that was embarrassing. It'll never happen again. You know, and just keep it short and sweet. And you know, I've, you know, I've got a, I'm in shell shock, and we'll, I need to go away and, and work out what's happened. You know, we, I've I've picked the wrong team. Um, you know, and he just the players and and you know in a way John Massino came out and gave a, an unbelievable interview after that yeah 10 minutes later and you just think that's what you should have said you know yeah. to pick any 30 seconds of that John Massino interview and Pep Clotet could read that out and you'd go okay that would be fine but yeah it was I'm just not. you'd think this is not coming across well and you and you, you know yeah. people listening at home just want to just want to hear an apology don't they at that point i remember saying asking that exact question to jerome about clotet in that was that his kind of the end you know nail in the coffin for him because Mm. by by base it not so much on the result on the post-match interview because i I remember that was it that was the that was it for me personally Mm. as a fan but um yeah if, if you think about kr today I mean, his reaction to that would have been, I mean, I can't even think, I can't even imagine. He'd still be talking, I think. Yeah, exactly. And so do you find with (laughs) with him and maybe some examples throughout this season, how he's brilliant, but also hinders what you do? And are there times where you sort of roll your eyes a little bit? Well, not necessarily this season, I think. I mean, he he is quite... um... Like I said, I, I think post-match interviews are difficult, and I think he he has so many things going through his head after a game that he can be quite, you know, if you actually listen to what the question was and what he, then see what his answer was, 
you think that's you that's not what i asked yeah, yeah that's but i can't remember you know i can't remember what the question was because it was four minutes ago and you you were sort of very conscious that you have a as much as he you know he's happy to he'll talk for as long as you want you know there are limits to to how long you can detain him for um so he's getting him to kind of focus on a particular question it can be a difficult uh particularly if he wants to talk about something else um so i mean i think he in his first se- first full season that that autumn i mean the advice to him probably should have been or, or i think it probably was but he didn't pay any attention you know to talk less not more um which is actually you know a stupid thing for a journalist to say but you do there were times when you just think you're you know this is not helping anyone uh and you you know i'm sure you remember the the pre-match to the plymouth game where you know he he starts a war with northern ireland over gavin white yeah that was a that was a low point and you just think i can't believe you know i i can't believe you're saying this because do you not see how this comes across uh you know firstly it was it was sort of palpably ridiculous because you know are you saying when you sell him which it turns out you did you know nine months later him playing for northern ireland won't help his value you know it was almost like you know he, they were doing a northern ireland favor um and so at that point i mean that was just pure pressure and he's he's a he's a heart on his sleeve kind of guy and you know you, i don't know how to play poker but i feel like i'd quite like to play carl robertson at poker because you just wonder if he'd be able to keep a lid on what what his hand is because um it's just all on the surface isn't it um but i think that's that's why he gets people's backs up you know particularly opposition uh fans but it's it's also why he can he can he's the perfect guy at t- you know for when things were going wrong at oxford last season off the pitch he was the perfect guy to to rally people round and be a kind of lightning rod and get people believing in a project and that's you know i just remember thinking that that process to get to appoint him was so long and there were so many clowns that were in the running you just think this is a proper manager and he ticked the the first interview was word perfect you know he ticked all the boxes he and and you can see that at that point the club needed someone to get them together because it was sort of drifting away wasn't it um so, and we've seen it this season when, uh, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for, for what's happened this season because he's, you know, and players buy into it as well. I always think that um, the way managers deal with you, deal with me as a, as a or, you know, us as, a, as journalists, if, if they can come out after a defeat and after 10 minutes of talking, make you think that it's not that bad, well, they can have that impact on players in the dressing room as well. You know, if they can yeah. come up with a convincing argument. So, you know, he is someone you can see why players love him because he he's a, you know, bundle of energy. He's genuinely interested in them as people. And um, he's, a, he's a very sort of paternal figure. You know, he's got a, a hard side to him as well. Uh, but, you know, I can imagine when things are going well, there's not many better people to play for because particularly because he just... He wants you to play with some freedom. Finally, on on managers, which out of the the three you covered do you think um, tries to use the media, so to speak, to get their their point out, or sort of plays the kind of mind games as much as you can at, at this level? Oh, oh, Chris Wilder, without a doubt. 
I think he, yeah, there were times when you think, oh, you know, you've thought this through because he's, he's ended up turning a question about something completely different into something else. Uh, you know, I think they all do it to a certain extent, probably Appleton the least, because I don't think Michael Appleton read a single word that I wrote. And I don't think he, you know, does he doesn't read newspapers, doesn't read, you know, news sites on, online or anything like that. He's he's so sort of single-minded on what he wants to do that, you know, we are just, you know, white noise, to, to use a phrase he used <laughs> once. Um so I think he's he's above he doesn't he's not fussed with all that not nonsense, uh, but yeah I think there are times when Carl will will play it as well and you can you know what he's doing, um, <laughs> good, <laughs> uh, you know and and you don't always go along with it, um, so but yeah I mean Chris Wilder was definitely I mean if anything I think he probably thought too much about that side and then it probably was a bit of a distraction you did you did get the sense he was probably looking at forums and things like that really uh, i well i wouldn't be Dang, surprised dangerous place world well exactly but you know you think you should be worried about you know chesterfield's you know long throws or whatever than worrying about you know what i've written <laughs> or or what have you but yeah he he would i mean he, but he was he was very good at it in terms of um, for big get, like I said, for big games, he he would pick the tone just right. I mean, I've covered probably five hundred games. My, but the num- game number two takes some beating, which was the Swindon game at Oxford, the one where Bino was sent off, and it, I'm that was probably my second pre-match press conference, and he just wasn't fighting at all. You know, he was playing everything down. You know, he was he was all about. I think was it Brian Clough was sort of said, you know, you do your talking afterwards. Um, once you've won, you know, and but even then he was cool as a cucumber because he knew that Paolo would, <laughs> would talk himself into trouble, and yeah. if he wasn't going to give Swindon any ammunition, we were going to go into quick fire questions, and that, mm. that kind of leads us to quite a, a nice one. We, do, we were going to ask you sort of what were top of the pile in terms of memorable matches covered with the Oxford Mail, and would you say that sort of Swindon games were some of them? That takes some beating, definitely that second game, because it was the context was just so, you know, I don't know what, if, if there was online, you know, in-game betting at that point, but at the point Bino gets sent off against a team that's won 10 in a row, and I think there was no Jake Wright, no Peter Levin, you were like, this is going to be a massacre. But you, you need to get that bet on quickly, because with, within a couple of minutes, it was 2-0. That was, a, that was an amazing game. Yeah. Um, I remember vividly. The, I mean, the... The, I mean, they're all they all stand out. The Swindon games, the the game of the Rob Hall winner was brilliant. The the Maguire, um, you know, the mind games with Monsieur Vigaru was very <laughs> enjoyable. But you know, the ones people forget the the Alfie Potter late winner in the JPT or the the game where Rufi scores twice and they have they they just self destruct. You know, they were all brilliant uh, games. But uh, yeah, I mean, that first one takes some beating because I'm because I was coming in as you know, I was aware it was a derby, but I mean, Gillingham don't really have a derby. So this was no. completely, I was taken aback by just what a derby meant. Um, so what about, what about worst then, if we turn it the other guy, worst or the most demoralising ones? Um, I've got, I, I thought you might ask this. So I've got, there's two that stand out. The first one was a last minute defeat at Chesterfield in 2012, which meant they'd lost something like, 10 of their first 18 
games and it was the start of November and you think this this November and their their chance of getting in the playoffs have already gone because how many games can you lose and still get in the playoffs? It's maybe yeah. 15, you know, and you think there's no way this lot are not, you know, losing three or four in 30 games or something, you know, and you just, you felt, because I think they were, I think they, I think maybe Johnny Mullins scored after a minute and you think this is, this is going to be the day it turns. And then, you know, a last minute winner for them kind of killed it. And uh, I pretty much wrote that. And that was a, a time when, I had a phone call from Chris Wilder the next day. Um, <laughs> the the other one, low point personally, was actually after a win, the the Gateshead debacle. I mean, firstly, the saga was, you know, you I'm sure you remember it, the the game game, the first the replay being called off sort of twenty minutes before kickoff. So you we've driven there and as soon and actually it hadn't crossed our mind that it could be called off until we pulled off the motorway and, and down the slip road was flooded and we hadn't really come through any rain and you think well we, we could be in trouble here and then you get to the ground and you're like there's, there's no way this game is going to be on so we were we you know talk about what a stupid job this is sometimes you know you can you imagine getting in a car <laughs> driving to gateshead for 20 minutes and then dr- getting and turning straight back around again i remember writing my back page lead on the counter of a fish and chip shop in weatherby at about <laughs> eight o'clock you know, but and the really sinking feeling is not that you've got to go back home after not doing it; is you've got to repeat the journey, <laughs> the actual game, and the actual game was went to extra time. Oh free, god, freezing cold, and they get through thanks to Dean Smalley's penalty. And funny enough, that I'd gone up with the first, the first one I'd gone up with the radio guys. The second one I'd gone up on my own because I knew a guy, uh, a guy I used to live with, um, lives in Gateshead, so I stayed up the night before to break it up but uh i drove home so you know it's a long old way and a personal low point was pulling into leicester forest east services at three in the morning because i just i'm falling asleep so i had a nap there didn't get home till half six in the morning oh Um, my god and then you you know that you've got to get a rexham in three days time uh but that was the night (laughs) nelson mandela died and i listened to the radio all the way home so if i could have gone on mastermind the next day he would have been my specialist subject and I knew everything about <laughs> Nelson Mandela for, you know, but I don't now, obviously, but uh, yeah, that was quite a diff, quite a horrible night because you just, it's a long way to go for. So I think that, that naturally answers your least favoured away grounds. I think. <laughs> what about the best grounds that you, you always like to go to just one or two? I love sort of the old school type where you've got four distinct sides and there's a real tradition. So Bramall Lane, Fratton Park, Ellen Road, places like that. I, you know, I, I yeah. absolutely love all of those grounds, and it'll be a real shame once, you know, if if they ever kind of move on. Um, yeah, uh, anywhere like, especially like Bramall Lane, where they've got the, the particular song they sing just for kickoff. You know, um, yeah, the, the tradition. I love that. You know, I, I think that's great. Um, so yeah, they're they're great. It's like um, uh, an awkward one. Uh, Top manager, top Oxford manager you've covered. So you've got to make a choice. Well, I think uh, I know which one it will be, but I think it has to be um, Michael Appleton. I, I'm sure Carl doesn't listen. I I, I love <laughs> dealing with Carl, but Mike, those two years, two of the you know the, his second and third years were just a thrilling ride. You know, Carl, it could yet be Carl, but we, we're not there yet. 
Nice. Um, it's a nice little caveat. That's there a, you go. Yeah, save, like saved that. yourself. <laughs> okay. Um, top top three Oxford players just on a skill skill level, a sort of a you know footballing wise. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, Kamar Reef's got to be in there, hasn't he? I mean, some of those goals he scored were unbelievable. I think probably the the best player when I came in, and it's a shame he wasn't fitter more often. But and Peter Levin, people forget just how classy yeah. that left boot was. Um, and if I'm looking at a sort of a current one, I mean, I, I love James Henry as a, a technician. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. We drool over him regularly, as you probably occasionally. Yeah, hear. yeah. He's just, you could just trust him with the ball, can't you? And, and he, he seems to, to thrive on uh, the bigger the game, the, the better he plays. And, you know, a bit like Chris Maguire, I suppose, but um, who would probably be number four. Um yeah, uh, James Henry's great, and he's his own guy as well. He's not he's not interested in sort of courting publicity or anything like that. He's you know he I, I like him a lot. Um, who just... have you have you who have you been your your favourite to interview? Sort of couple of couple of sort of yeah to interview. Yeah, I mean I'll, I'll sort of I mean everyone says Danny Hilton. He was brilliant. Um, I, I mean John Massino is is fantastic, and I I think I tweeted before that. I'm sure he's going to be a manager and I'd love to cover that club when he does because he's, um, I just love talking to him. He's, he's great, uh, very intelligent, listens to what you, you know, you don't get the answer you think you're going to get a lot of the time, which a lot of them do. Um, one that, that you probably won't uh, have thought of, but I really like speaking to him. John Meads was, was a lovely bloke. Oh, right. um, unfortunately, you know, more often than not, we're talking about injuries and recoveries and stuff, but uh, I love talking to him. Um, hmm. And I've got to, I've got to stick Alex McDonald in there. I've got a soft spot for him. <laughs> <laughs> I've only just learned about what he's actually like for hearing him on podcasts yeah. where he can say whatever he wants he's with great. no, no filters. Yeah. <laughs> he's a funny bloke. Yeah. But he, he was one that, you know, really, I remember the the they were in a bit of trouble just after he after he signed, and they they needed two players to come out and give it give it you know bit of, bit of Churchill, and they picked Jake Wright and, and Alex McDonald, and it showed what he what impact he'd made. I think he you people underestimate the the role he played in that changing room. Very good, For sure. Right, two hours. Blimey, <laughs> we're not concise. <laughs> um, that was awesome, Dave. Thanks, thanks for that. That was great. Did you enjoy it? My pleasure. No, it was good. Sorry, I might have waffled <laughs> on for a bit there, but no, not at all. No, it's fantastic. I think that my takeaway will be that whenever we have like a Tuesday night FA Cup game that goes to extra time <laughs> and it's five four, and then there's another equaliser before penalty, I, you know, I'll be thinking of you pulling all that crap together. No, you won't. <laughs> You'll be jumping around. Like everyone else. I still, I'm still the whole way through this. I've been trying to picture you like keeping the Twitter feed up to date whilst simultaneously writing the report. And I just can't, you know, I just can't imagine having that type of pressure on me. So I'm glad it's you. Okay. But good. Well, thank you very much for doing it. No problem. Well, it's, it's a real privilege to do the job I do. It, it, you know, it's got its highs and lows like everything else, but um, you never lose sight. I never, I never think, Oh, I can't be bothered to go to Rochdale today. You know, it's worth it for the chippy alone, isn't it? And the, the pre-match music. But yeah, I, yeah. I, it's it's a it's a joy, and it will be a very sad day when I leave. Excellent. Well, ho- let's hope that's in in the far future. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> right. Cheers, Dave. Cheers, guys. Well.